I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 16. And uh, if you want to follow along in the Bible located in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 977, I believe. I didn't verify that, but you'll find it within that region. So, uh, so 977 or Matthew chapter 16. And I will go ahead and, and read the text as you just simply follow along in your copy of the word of the Lord this morning, beginning in verse 21. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning and give us illumination as we begin to exposit it. I was reading a uh, biography uh, here lately. Um, it's a, about a German, or actually technically a Swiss theologian, uh, widely believed to be the, uh, the greatest theologian of the 20th century. His name was Karl Barth. It's spelled Barth, but it's pronounced Bart. Uh, just like Luther is actually pronounced a Luther uh, in the same, kind of that same thing. And he's not normally a person that I would be very interested in because uh, his theology really does not match with mine. Uh, he, he is a Protestant theologian. I do believe he was a saved man, but there are uh, things about his theology being a Lutheran and being other things that I, I just simply uh, cannot agree with. Uh, and I was a little surprised. I read this biography because it was assigned to us and we had to read it. And, uh, and so I kind of went into it reluctantly. In, flat, in fact, it was the last book I read for that class. I was saving it until the very end because I was uh, so not looking forward to reading it. And I got to tell you, when I picked it up and began to read it, I could not put it down. You see, Karl Barth ministered during the time between, in Germany between the time between the First World War and the Second World War. And he was, a, he was a teacher at the seminary in Bonn, Germany. 
And what he saw in the German Protestant churches is that these churches, during the, during the fall of the Weimar government and then as the political unrest was beginning to happen and as the rise of the Third Reich began to come, he began to look out at the German Protestant churches and he saw that the churches were essentially becoming a propaganda machine for the government. And he saw that in his own seminary, these, uh, these sermons were, were being used as a, as a means to prop up German national interest. They, they began to preach a style of sermon that is called Die Moderne Predigt, which means the modern sermon. It was a, a theme sermon that, yes, they would, they would have scripture in it, but that scripture would often be twisted to mean uh, things like national interest. For example, they would take that wonderful promise in Romans 8, if God be with us, who can be against us? In other words, if God is for us and you are a Christian who's struggling with sin, those things cannot come against you because those things cannot be with you. He takes that wonderful, they took that wonderful promise of scripture to the Christian who's struggling with sin and they basically said, if God is with Germany, then no one can stand against us, say a horrible twisting of scripture. And so as a result, I have a very profound respect now for Dr. Barth because he fought against that. And he took on, he was a theological instructor, but he took on the task of teaching preaching and and he taught his students away from that kind of sermon. And the Third Reich, the fascists, were never able to really get a foothold in Bonn, Germany, largely because of the work of Karl Barth. He understood that those kinds of sermons made the church susceptible to the fascists that were coming in. You know, it's, and by the way, he eventually, getting, he eventually got uh, exiled from Germany and spent the rest of his life in Switzerland. But you know, it is always a challenge, isn't it? Who, every time we come to church, this is something that every Christian must contend with, every church must contend with. This is a question that us as your leadership has to, has to always have on our face. This is a question that you must ask every time you come to church, and that is that, and that is this, whose kingdom are we looking to build? Are we looking to build our kingdoms? Are we looking to build our influence? Are we looking to build our flame, either as individuals or as a church? Or are we looking to build the kingdom of Christ? That's what we always have to ask ourselves. And that is what Peter is gonna come face to face with in our text this morning, is whose kingdom is he actually interested in? Jesus had just said, we saw last week in that great confession, that Peter is the rock upon which Christ will build his church, that, that confession that Peter gave. And then he gives this wonderful uh, commission that he says that whatever you bind, whatever you loose on earth will have been bound, will have been loosened in heaven. That, in other words, when we go and preach the gospel, we do so as long as we are, as long as we are faithful to the scriptures, we have all the authority of heaven behind us. We saw that last week. And that is an awesome responsibility. And it's not something that we dare take lightly. And that is what Peter is going to find out because there is always this temptation. 
to want to build some kingdom that we want to see in our community, some kingdom that we want to see in our lives, some kingdom that we want to see in our nation. There's always that temptation to conflate the scriptures with our national interest, with our personal interest, and even sometimes, yes, our church's interest. And so because of that temptation, beloved, we must accept the need to sacrifice ourselves on the throne of Christ. We must recognize our need to die to self, to practice self-denial, to sacrifice ourselves for the kingdom of Christ. What an appropriate sermon. I guess it'd be a little more appropriate for Memorial Day. But when a soldier takes on that uniform, he accepts the need that he may have to give his life for our country. Beloved, when you take on the cross of Christ, you accept the fact that it's not a matter of you might have to, you do have to give your life for the kingdom of God. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So we're gonna see what this meant for Peter. What does that mean for us? Well, we're gonna see that by what it meant for Peter. This morning, we're essentially looking at two instructions on how we sacrifice ourselves. How do we do this? Number one, in verses 21 and 23, the first thing we need to do is set our minds on the things of God. Set our minds on the things of God. Look back in in verse uh, 21. He says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. This is a major turning point in the discipleship and the maturity of the disciples. They've, they've already seen that Christ is now, they, they understand that Jesus is the Christ. Now, do they understand the full implications of that? Probably not. In fact, I think that's pretty much determined by what we're seeing right here. So do they understand the full implications? No, but they do understand that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the promised king and he is the son of the living God. They confess this and now Jesus' teaching is gonna switch gears. Now you know who I am. Now you're ready to find out what I'm here to do. And Jesus tells them, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna suffer. And in three days after death, I'm gonna raise. By the way, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses three and four for a moment. It's amazing the parallel between Jesus and Paul. We see, for Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Jesus's words and Paul's words here are precisely parallel, precisely parallel. In other words, Jesus is foretelling the gospel. You know who I am and now you need to understand the gospel that I have come to accomplish. It is not a gospel of self-improvement. It is not a gospel of of further education. It is not a gospel to make you a happy, well-adjusted sinner. It is a gospel that means that Christ had to die because the only way to save sinners 
is that Christ had to die. You remember the night before the crucifixion? Lord, if there be any way, remove this cup for me, beloved. You think if there were any way, God would have answered that prayer? Of course he would have. There was no other way. And so Jesus died. And Paul says that this is of first importance. This is the first thing. This is the only thing. And everything that we say is derived from that wonderful message that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and that he rose for our justification. That everything we do is derivative and comes out and is the good gifts of that message. And you can imagine that that was shocking to Peter to find out that the one that he just realized is the coming king, the one that he just realized is the son of the living God is now telling him that I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm gonna die and I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna be killed. And so Peter comes to him aside And your translations are very different here. For instance, my translation says, God forbid it, Lord. Some of your translations say, no, Lord. Some of yours say, never, Lord. May it never be, Lord. What's happening here? If you wanted to translate it literally, it would say mercy to you. In other words, the idea is that, no, Lord, God's mercy must stop this. God's mercy will, will, will come in and he will put an end to all this death talk, Lord. Don't you know that all this talk about death is, is not a positive message for your disciples? Don't you know that that's hurting their self-esteem? Don't you know that if we wanna build a movement here, then, then we've, gotta be, we've gotta be all positive. Let's just hug each other and sing Kumbaya. We can't can't talk about all this death, Lord. May it never happen. God's mercy must put a stop to this for for the grace of our Lord. That's very audacious for him to do this. It was dishonorable for for a disciple to come to his teacher and rebuke him in the first place, but to rebuke him so strongly just shows how bad this shocked Peter to his core. You know, when we're shocked by something, we often act in ways that we normally wouldn't act. And I think that's really what Peter might be doing here. But Jesus meets his strong rebuke with a pretty strong response. Jesus looks at him. I imagine Peter might have even been yelling at him. And Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Wouldn't you just love for Jesus to compare you to Satan? (laughs) My goodness, my goodness. The one that Jesus had just called the rock is now a stumbling block to the mission and the priorities of God. And all it took was two verses. All it took was two or three verses for that to happen. That's how quickly it can turn. That's how quickly that that 
earthly wisdom can take a stronghold in our lives and start to take over. Why compare him to Satan? I mean, this is a, this is a strong rebuke. I, I, I don't see a lot of kids walking around today. You know, I see a lot of kids. My, my kids are named Hannah after Grace. Kaylin's middle name is Grace. Our going joke is we need a lot of grace in our house. Hannah means grace in Hebrew. And then I wanted to name uh, uh, Colton Christopher, and Roxanne was like, uh, no. So uh, we went with Colton, but his middle name is Isaiah. Yesayahu, God saves, Yahweh saves, right? I don't see a lot of kids going around with the name Lucifer today. Have you noticed that? <laughs> now, there's a lot of kids we might wanna call that, but we, uh, I don't see a lot of kids going around with that name. And so Jesus calls him Satan. I mean, this is, a, this is a big deal. Why does he call him that? Because Jesus goes on and he, and he explains why it is. I've heard so many um, ideas of why he does this. Some people actually say that Peter in this moment was inspired and even possessed by Satan, that in the same way that Satan is literally said to enter, Peter, uh, enter uh, Judas later on, uh, he has entered Peter and he is telling him, he's trying to hinder him in order from uh, accomplishing his goal. I, I think that's over reading the text. It doesn't say that. What it does say, Jesus tells us what's happening. Why does he call him Satan? Because he says that you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on the interest of men. On the interest of men. Look at James chapter three, verse 13 for a moment talking about worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. Look what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. He goes on in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy, if you have selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false from the truth. Why? As he goes on to say, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, watch this, demonic, demonic. For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It doesn't mean that Satan literally entered Peter, but what it does mean is that Peter's concerns were not aligned with the concerns of God. And beloved, if that is true of us, then we are not concerned with the interests of God, but we are following Satan's agenda. There's no riding the fence on this one. It's either one or the other. One of our members um, uh, posted a, uh, a meme on Facebook this week. It's a picture, you know, that has words on it. And it's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon just had a way with words. And, uh, and here's what he says. He says, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, but discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. You see, beloved, here's the problem. 
if our mind, uh, Romans chapter eight, verse five says that the, the flesh, those who are living according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. If you are, if you, if your mind is set on the things of the flesh, if your mind is set on the things of the world, then the world's wisdom is going to be very attractive to you. It's going to make sense. That's what Jesus says, that they listen to them because they are of them. And this is the danger that we all have a tendency to fall into. In Psalm 1, it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Do you notice that progression? First, you listen to their advice. Then you stand on their side. And then you sit in their seat. Here's the thing, when you sit down, I don't know about you, but when I sit down, I plan to stay there for a while. You see that progression there. And it all starts with listening to the wisdom of the world. The, if our minds are set on fleshly concerns, then the wisdom of the flesh will appeal. And all the time, we have people who are, who are, uh, who are um, just absolutely convinced of the wisdom of the world. And they're always telling the church how we must carry out the business of God. Oh, don't mention sin. That's too negative. Oh, don't preach more than 25 minutes. Obviously, I don't listen to that one very much. <laughs> By the way, your attention span is directly related to your interest in the topic. Amen? The problem with that is that we have a lot of people in churches today that are really not interested in God's word. Maybe that's the problem. And so the world's wisdom is constantly telling us what we must and must not do. Oh, don't practice church discipline. That's just intolerant. No, it's actually one of the most loving things we can do. And so, beloved, but if your mind is set on the world, all of that will appeal to you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we can't learn things from them. Of course we can. Of course we can. But always with a discerning eye. Never just taking it for what it is, understanding that the world is not our friend. It's not our friend. We are here to call out and build up the sheep, not entertain the goats. We are here to call out and build the sheep, not entertain the goats. So if we're gonna do that, we must set our mind on the things of God and be willing to follow him no matter the cost. That really brings us to the second point that we must embrace the suffering of Christ. We must embrace the suffering of Christ. Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You think what Jesus just said is shocking. This is even gonna be even more shocking. Not only does the Messiah have to go, not only does the Messiah have to suffer, not only does the Christ have to die, but Peter, you do too. If you want to follow Christ, then you must 
die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another German theologian and preacher who resisted the Third Reich and actually gave his life for preaching the truth, killed in a Nazi concentration camp. He said that the call to come to Christ is a call to die. Christianity is about death. And this must have been shocking. The kingdom is supposed to be a place of comfort, of riches, of influence. And yet Jesus says, not only am I going to die, but you must die too. I don't think I can say it any better than a, a great man of yesteryear named A.W. Tozer. He talks about the difference in his little article, the, new, the old cross versus the new. That may not be big enough to read, but let me read it to you. It says, the new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner, jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come, assert yourself in Christ. To the egoist, he says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of the abundant Christian life. He goes on to say the idea behind this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a person. Beloved, there is no self-respect on a cross. Do you understand that? There is no self-respect on a cross. There's no personal boasting on a cross. Why is this necessary? Because Jesus goes on in verse 25. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We who are living are always being given over to death. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says once again the same thing. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. The whole point of Christianity is to die so that Jesus might live through us. That his life may be manifested, his love may be manifested, his joy may be manifested, his peace may be manifested. All of those fruits of the Spirit are all aspects of what it means to be like Christ. And so why all this talk about death? Why all this talk about death? It's really just another way, a vivid way, but it's another way of speaking of repentance. Of repentance. So many Christians today are leaving repentance out of the gospel. Beloved, don't do that. It is the very first command of the gospel. The very first message that Jesus preached was repent, for the kingdom of God is at and that if you would come to Christ, you must turn from yourself, self-rule, and from sin. Can you imagine proposing to a young lady and saying, I will spend the rest of my life with you as long as you'll let me have this other girlfriend? 
not going to work, is it, ladies? No. So why do we think we can do that with God? Why do we think we can do that with Christ? Why do we think that we can ride, that we can have the best of both worlds? I can have my sin and I can have my Savior too. Doesn't work like that. So why this? Why this? In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 10, we've already seen this before in verse 38 and 39, he says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If we're unwilling to die to self, then don't expect the power of Christ in your life. Don't expect it. And Jesus, this, this is so hard. This, this is a hard teaching. In fact, it's so hard that Jesus is gonna back it up with two rationales. He's gonna say in verse 26, speaking of whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. He says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What if you gain everything that you want in this life? What if you gain every pleasure you've ever wanted? What if you gain all the riches that you've ever dreamed of? What if you've gained every material thing that you've ever wanted? What if you get all, what if your life is full of trouble, is full of, of happiness and joy, and there's never any trouble, there's never any of those things? What if you gain all of that, everything that you want out of life? What happens next? You die. And regardless of heaven or hell, one thing is true about both of them is that you can't take this life with you. That's the one thing they share in common is that everything you've amassed, whatever it is, your kingdom, your world that, you've, that you have built, spent your whole life building, it stays, you go. Regardless, heaven or hell, can't take it with you. You lose it either way. But it's not just a matter of what you lose. It's also what you stand to gain. You see, because Christ goes on and says that for the Son of Man is coming in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will repay each one according to his deeds. What if you gain the entire world? You lose it, and you gain hell. What good is that? What if you lose your entire world, but you gain eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you really willing to risk hell in order to get whatever it is you're trying to get? If you die in faith, you gain eternal life and the rewards of a life lived to his glory. If you die in unbelief, eternal death, and the punishments of a life lived attempting to rob him of his glory. And so what will you do? What will you do? Jesus says, if you'll come after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You know, that um, phrase, deny yourself, is interesting because it's actually very hard to translate. Not in English, uh, not in the Romance languages, but there are 
there are many languages around the world that if you try to translate that phrase, it doesn't compute. They just don't have a linguistic way to translate that. The, the idea of saying no to self, there's just no grammatically correct, there's no linguistic way to express that. Isn't that interesting? And so uh, that this is such a universal aspect of our heart that there are many languages around the world that do not even have a way to say it. That saying no to ourselves is so foreign to our hearts that many languages, you can't even say that. And so the translation helps and guides. They, they say you have to use something like to refuse to pay attention to what one's own desires are saying. To refuse to think about or try to accomplish what you only want for yourself. I think that's a great commentary of what Jesus is talking about here. To refuse to think about, to refuse to pay attention to what your desires are telling you you must have. That's what it means to deny self. Self-denial. Beloved, let me ask you a question. Have you been slain by the cross this morning or are you merely redirected? Are you trying to assert yourself in Christ? Or are you willing to die to your assertion? Is your goal of the Christian life to die so that Christ may live or for Christ to give you the life you want? What is your goal? Is your desire for Christ more self-driven or is it God-driven? What was it this morning that you wanted to see when you came here? What is it that our leadership is trying to move our church for? Is it self-driven? Is it man-driven? Or is it God-driven? Beloved, if we're going to live in the kingdom and be useful in the kingdom, then we must embrace the need to sacrifice ourselves. We must embrace the need for self sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse one. I don't think I have this on the board. But it says, therefore, I beseech you now, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Everything he talks about in Romans one through 11. I beg you, I appeal to you, I am urging you now by all of these mercies that, that I have told you in 11 chapters I spent expounding to you. In light of all of those things now, I am now appealing and urging to you to lay down your life. What does it say exactly? It says to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We must be willing to embrace the need to sacrifice ourselves, to die to self. And how do we do that? By setting our minds on the things of God and embracing the sufferings of Christ. Peter wanted the kingdom, no doubt about it. He wanted the kingdom, but he didn't want the cost. 
He didn't want the cost. Beloved, we cannot embrace Christ's glory if we refuse to embrace his cross. We cannot have the life of Christ without embracing the death of Christ. So what is your driving passion? What is your motivation? What is your need for validation or satisfaction? What were you hoping to gain by coming to church today? What is it that you're looking for? By God's grace, may we all be looking for the death of ourselves so that Christ may live in us. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, all this talk about death and life may be confusing to you. You see, the reason why we embrace the death is because we understand that the only way we are saved from our sins, the only way we are saved from death is through the death of Christ. Because he came to earth, he is God's eternal son, fully God, fully man. He came and lived the perfect righteous life of obedience to his father earning the righteousness that you and I need, we can't do that on our own. Even our best obedience is, is at best mixed, a mixed bag of motivations, faith and doubt and so on. So Christ came and lived the absolutely perfect life, born of a virgin. He went and died on the cross and, and punishment for our sins. Not that he deserved the punishment, but he died as a substitute for us taking God's wrath, enduring his own wrath so that you and I don't have to. And because that work was enough, because that work was finished, God raised him on the third day and he was seen by over 500 witnesses, seen by men by whom gave us the inspired record of those things. And now he's ascended to heaven, he is on the throne and he is offering himself to every sinner as a rescue from your sin. And our response is simply this, to repent, which means to turn from our self-rule, from our self-driven passions, from our sin, and to place our faith alone in Jesus Christ and the work he did for us, that gospel, that he died for our sins according with the scriptures, he was buried and he rose on the third day. That's the message that gives us hope. That's the message. And beloved, he's coming again. One day he will return and he will establish the eternal heavens, the eternal earth. And those who are his will be a part of that kingdom. And I pray that every person under the sound of my voice today will be there but I suspect that maybe there are some who won't be. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, I pray that you will respond. You need this message. What has your life given you? At best, hope for a few more years on this earth and then you die. And in unbelief, 
who suffer eternal death, always dying, never dead, always experiencing the wrath that you justly deserve. So will you accept Christ's substitution for you? Or will you continue to try to make it on your own? If you need to know Christ this morning, I will be down in front. I would love for you to come and, and ask questions. If you're here this morning and you say, Randy, I've been living in a way that suits my own interests, not the Lord's. I'm not dying to self. And I need specific guidance for how to do that. I'll be down front. I'll be happy to pray with you, happy to counsel. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for those who are here. Lord, I pray that if there's one here who does not know you as their eternal savior, who has not submitted to you as their Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would come to you. Father, if there are Christians here today, it's so easy to get off track, so easy to turn to our own interest to look for our own things, to build our little castles made of sand. Or just like the king of Babylon so many years ago, looking out at the North Star and saying, that's me, not understanding that the sunrise of God's glory is about to come. And that little mediocre star would just disappear. Father, don't let us disappear in our sin. Don't let us die in our sin. Every person who's here today, Lord, I, I beg you to convict them. That they would understand that that draw, that pull that they're feeling even now is a call to come to you for their eternal salvation. Father, whatever the need is, we pray that you have your way in our lives this morning. Let's stand together and sing, I've decided to follow Christ. And as I said, if you're here this morning and there is a need on your mind, on your heart, you wanna come forward and ask for guidance, prayer, whatever it may be, I invite you to come.